Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Nineteen sixty eight was an extremely turbulent and painful year in the United States of America. The Vietnam War was in full swing, as well as the protest movement against it. Gallup poll results in February of nineteen sixty eight showed that fully half of the American populace disapproved of President Lyndon B. Johnson's, or LBJ as he liked to be called, they disapproved of his handling of the war in Vietnam. By March of 1968, LBJ notified his party and the nation that he would not run for a second full term in office. In April of 1968, Beloved civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. In June of the same year, popular New York Senator and former Attorney General Robert Kennedy, or RFK, was assassinated too. Then, the August Democratic National Convention in Chicago erupted in protests and police violence, the likes of which many in the U.S. had never seen. Needless to say, 1968 was a traumatizing year for the U.S., and I've just mentioned the high points. Today, as an addition to our series about important elections, we'll be discussing the American presidential election of 1968 within the context of the larger political and social upheaval happening in the United States during that time. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sarah. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. Twenty twenty was a weird year. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. And we could not have done what we do without you, listeners. Our Patreon supporters keep the lights on and the microphones recording, and we are grateful for each and every one of you. We want to give a special shout out to our mega donors, our auger and excavator level patrons, Maddie, Denise, Colin, Edward, Susan, Christopher, Peggy, Maggie, Danielle, and Iris. Thank you a million times. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. You can just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. By 1968, apart from Republican President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Democrats had controlled the White House since 1933, so 24 of the previous 32 years. The Democratic Party dealt with dueling loyalties since the 30s. It's a staunch segregationist Southern element, and then it's more progressive Northern faction. In the mid-1960s, these dueling loyalties met in a perfect storm, which shook the very foundation of the party and opened the door for Republican domination of the White House throughout the 1970s and 80s, save Jimmy Carter's one-term presidency. Oh, Jimmy Carter. Oh, Jimmy Carter. Such a nice little peanut farmer. By the 1968 election, Democrats were trying to hang on to white voters who were turned off by the racial liberalism of Johnson's Great Society domestic program, which ushered in economic and social opportunities for racial minorities. 
The Democrats were also trying to hang on to the more liberal and radical elements of the party who railed against the war in Vietnam and felt that the Johnson administration had lost its moral compass. Alternatively, the Republican Party was not as weak in the late 60s as the 1964 electoral map would lead many to believe. In the election of 1964, LBJ beat Republican Barry Goldwater in a landslide victory. However, Goldwater did win five southern states, which historically had always gone to the Democrats. This move by many white Southerners to the Republican Party was a signal of what was to come in subsequent elections and guaranteed that the election of 1968 would be a real political contest. Complicating matters in the 1968 election was the addition of a third-party candidate, George Wallace. The former governor of Alabama, who had famously declared segregation now, segregation forever, was a master at channeling the resentments of white Americans who feared black people were encroaching on their privileges. The civil rights movement was making real strides during the 1960s. Congress passed Public Law 88352, or more commonly known as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibited discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Provisions of the act barred discrimination in hiring, promotion, and firing in employment. It also prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and federally funded programs. Basically, the Civil Rights Act ended the legal sanction of Jim Crow laws. Also, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which ended discriminatory voting practices like literacy tests and poll taxes, ushering in a wave of new black voters. It's worth noting, however, that the Voting Rights Act was immediately challenged in courts, and although the Supreme Court issued a number of rulings that strengthened the law, the pushback to the Voting Rights Act shows us how entrenched racism did not simply go away with the passage of a law. Instead, candidates used dog whistle tactics that equated, quote-unquote, big government with race. In a campaign speech, George Wallace spoke to a white audience who were against school integration. He promised them, quote, when I become president, there won't be one thin dime available from federal funds to pay for all that school busing. The Republican presidential candidate in the election of 1968 was Richard Nixon, who ran on a law and order and states' rights campaign and railed against liberal government programs like Johnson's Great Society. So the political and social playing field in the 1968 election was highly polarized. The social changes and upheaval of the mid to late 1960s made the presidential contest of 1968 just that much more electric. As early as November of 1967, the presidential race of 68 was shaping up. Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota announced his candidacy for the Democratic National Party presidential nomination on an anti-war platform. McCarthy is a kind of interesting character. He began his early career as an economics professor and served as a codebreaker during World War II. In 1948, he was elected to the House of Representatives, where he served until he was elected to the Senate in 1964. He became a staunch adversary of LBJ's handling of the Vietnam War as it progressed, earning him accolades from young political Democrats who were against the war. Young people flocked to his presidential campaign, with men shaving their beards and cutting their counterculture long hair to, quote, get clean for Gene and campaign for him. <laughs> I know, it's that's funny. Uh, McCarthy's run for presidency didn't 
gain much traction, as LBJ, the sitting president, was still the assumed candidate for the Democratic ticket. However, that changed in January of 1968. This photograph that you have here of this this gentleman being shaved. Getting clean for Gene. <laughs> yeah, getting clean for Gene. <laughs> being shaved uh, on on account of his, his political work is just fabulous. And it reminds me of, of like the... The weird cultural and social importance that we put on things like facial hair. Like hair. Yeah, I know. It's so interesting because facial hair changes so much because like, you know, in the 19th century, a beard would have been like the symbol of like manliness and adulthood. If you don't have whiskers, like what's wrong with you? Right. And (laughs) and by the mid 1960s or late 1960s, that's like a sign of like countercultural. Yep. Yep. And this poor, right, this know. poor guy, he looks like he does. He looks like a man and then they're shaving him and then he looks like a boy. Exactly. You're absolutely <laughs> right. I'm then again, I'm like a very big beard fan. I'm yeah. very into beards. OK, anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. A major escalation of the Vietnam War began on the holiday of Tet, the Vietnamese New Year, on January 30th, 1968. The North Vietnamese and their guerrilla supporters in the South launched a well-planned assault against the South Vietnamese and their American supporters. American news stations displayed shocking footage of the United States Embassy in Saigon being overrun and heavy fighting occurring in the streets. Contrary to what the Johnson administration had been telling the news media, the Tet Offensive confirmed that the war in Vietnam was not going well for the South Vietnamese and their American allies. The North Vietnamese launched the Tet Offensive with the plan that a mass uprising of supporters would topple the American-backed South Vietnamese government. This did not happen, however, and the North Vietnamese suffered heavy casualties in the tens of thousands. However, even though the Tet Offensive was eventually quashed, Americans were absolutely shocked by the media coverage of the event. On the second day of the Tet Offensive, photojournalist Eddie Adams and NBC cameraman Bo Suru were in the Chinese section of Saigon. Adams watched as a South Vietnamese soldier dragged a man wearing a plaid shirt out into the street and put his sidearm to the man's head. Adams, assuming the soldier was going to threaten or interrogate the man, raised his camera and began snapping photographs. However, Brigadier General Nguyen Nguyen Lone pulled the trigger. Adams' camera snapped a picture at the exact moment the bullet entered the man's head, capturing the moment of death for all time. NBC cameraman Bo Suru captured the execution of the man on film, who turned out to be Nguyen Van Lim, a member of the Viet Cong who had allegedly killed a South Vietnamese general and his family. Both the photograph and the video affected many Americans and made many feel that they were allied with the South Vietnamese in a war where they had no connection or shared values. Yeah. If you've never seen that that photograph, we will definitely put it in the in the um, transcript on our website. But man, what a disturbing photograph that is. It is. And you've probably seen it even if you didn't know you have. Yeah, you, you'd probably recognize it when you see it. Yeah. In February, a Gallup poll reported that 50% of the American public disapproved of Johnson's handling of the war in Vietnam. Later in the month, CBS Evening News anchor Walter Cronkite, a man known as the most trusted man in America, 
questioned the rosy picture that government officials gave about the war. After spending a week in Vietnam, Cronkite editorialized that it was unclear who won the Tet Offensive, and from the way he saw things, the war was going to end in a standoff, not a resounding victory like American leaders had been promising. Cronkite's hard-hitting news broadcast put into words what many Americans were feeling about the war. LBJ is purported to have said to his press secretary afterwards, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the country. A few days later, on February 29, 1968, the Kerner Commission released a report that warned America was a nation, quote, moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. The National Commission headed by Governor Otto Kerner of Illinois, was created in response to urban riots in the summer of 1967. Unfortunately, the report spurred no major policy or cultural changes. It did, however, highlight the stark reality that America was not a land of equal opportunity. And we should also add, this is during the height of the FBI's COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program. COINTELPRO was originally designed to disrupt the activities of the Communist Party, but expanded to include domestic civil rights groups. It succeeded in suppressing numerous rights organizations on the left. In fact, a few weeks after the Kerner report, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover secretly ordered COINTELPRO to, quote, neutralize and discredit black power and civil rights groups in order to prevent the rise of a black messiah in the black power movement. And you can hear more about COINTELPRO in our Black Panthers episode. The election year of 1968 was already stacking up to be a dramatic one for Democrats, as Eugene McCarthy was campaigning against a setting president and gaining traction. McCarthy's March 12th New Hampshire Democratic primary win convinced LBJ's longtime rival Robert F. Kennedy, commonly known as RFK or Bobby Kennedy, that Johnson's hold on the 68 presidential nomination was not actually a given. Robert Kennedy had been attorney general during the presidency of his brother, JFK, and had stayed on in the Johnson administration until he had left to run for Senate in New York in 1964, a seat that he won. Kennedy announced his candidacy for the presidential nomination on March 16th at a press conference in the caucus room of the old Senate office building, the same room where his brother, JFK, had announced his candidacy for president years earlier. Kennedy's entry into the race was met with outrage by both the Johnson and the McCarthy camps. Eugene McCarthy's campaign was furious that Kennedy would enter at so late a date and practically guaranteed that the anti-war vote would be split between the two candidates. However, unbeknownst to McCarthy, Kennedy, or practically anyone else in the Democratic establishment, LBJ was planning to retire at the end of his term and not seek re-election in 1968. So this is really interesting. Um, I'm going to, I guess, out myself for not knowing this. I thought that McCarthy and Kennedy entered the, um, the, oh my God. The race Thank after. You. Yes, he, entered after the race LBJ. after LBJ said that he was not going to run. I didn't realize that they had actually thrown their hats in the ring before it was publicly yeah. known that LBJ was going to retire. That's really saying something yeah. that they were willing to, you know. To primary a sitting right. president in their own yeah. party. I yeah. mean, that has yeah. happened, I mean, a tiny bit in recent years, but it's usually with like very kind of 
you know, people that know they're not going to win, not somebody with a profile like, you know, Robert Kennedy. Yeah. I mean, I'll go on into it a little more, but I mean, LBJ and RFK had a very contentious relationship to begin with. And of course, when Kennedy throws his hat in the ring, it's just like the ultimate betrayal (laughs) to LBJ. So on March 31st, Johnson gave a televised speech where he outlined a de-escalation of Vietnam. He announced that U.S. aircraft and naval attacks against North Vietnam would stop, with exception around the demilitarized zone. He outlined details about the national budget and a need for a surtax. Then, at the end of his televised speech, he notified a stunned America that he would not run for nor accept the nomination for president in the coming primary or election. He said, quote, with America's sons in the fields far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace in the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes, or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Much has been written about LBJ's refusal to run for a second full term. On its surface, some assumed that it was because McCarthy had a good showing in the primaries, Kennedy had joined the fray, and Johnson was suffering from low approval ratings. However, LBJ presidential transcripts and diary entries by Lady Bird Johnson reveal more personal reasons for the president's departure. His extreme fear that he would be stricken with a debilitating health issue while in office. In fact, he had even debated not running in 1964 after serving out the remainder of JFK's term. Johnson was extremely worried his health would give out, as many in his family had died young or had disabilities in their old age. In fact, he'd already had one heart attack in 1955 and was afraid he wouldn't survive another. In a post-presidency interview, he said, Every time I addressed the Senate chair in 1959 and 1960, I wondered if this would be the time that I'd fall over. I just never could be sure when I would be going out. Johnson was deathly afraid he'd end up like Woodrow Wilson, who suffered a stroke while in office and spent the last years of his presidency incapacitated. And effectively, wasn't Woodrow uh, Wilson's wife like running the show? His wife was running the show. Yeah. Nobody knew that he was upstairs, basically. Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. Anyway. When refusing to run for a second full term, Johnson professed that by foregoing the election, he would be able to give his full attention to the war in Vietnam. After announcing he would not run for a second full term, Johnson was free to focus on the war full time and apparently felt a greater ease once the decision had been made. For weeks, letters and telegrams poured into the White House commending Johnson for making such a selfless decision, and his approval ratings rose to nearly 60%. Only a week after the nation experienced the shock of LBJ's announcement, the unthinkable happened. While in Memphis, Tennessee, assisting African-American sanitary workers with their labor strike, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by a white supremacist. At 6.01 p.m., While speaking to Reverend Jesse Jackson on the outdoor balcony in front of room 306 at the Memphis Lorraine Motel, a lone bullet struck King in the right cheek and then severed his spinal cord. He fell back on the balcony unconscious but still alive. 
King was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital, but was pronounced dead at 7.05 p.m. on April 4, 1968. News of the killing reverberated through the country, sending many Americans into the streets in violent rage. Riots began across the country almost immediately, and so did gloating by white racists. Even all the way in Vietnam, some white GIs paraded around dressed as Klansmen in celebration of King's murder. Robert Kennedy was on the campaign trail, set to give a speech in Indianapolis, Indiana, when he heard the shocking news. Standing on the flatbed of a truck, Kennedy addressed the mostly black audience and solemnly gave them the news of King's assassination. Many of the audience screamed in grief. I think I've heard a recording of this or seen a, a seen a recording of it. There is a recording and I've got it linked in the show notes. It's it's really powerful. Yeah, it's an audio recording. Mm-hmm. Kennedy spoke for just under five minutes, acknowledging the anger and rage many would feel and told them he understood their anger as his brother was struck down by an assassin's bullet just five years earlier. He said, For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort to understand, to go beyond these rather difficult times. So I ask you tonight to return home, to say a prayer for the family of Martin Luther King, that's true, but more importantly, to say a prayer for our own country, which all of us love, a prayer for understanding and that compassion of which I spoke. For weeks, mourners expressed their sadness and rage over King's murder in different ways. As his body lie in state, with dignitaries and officials streaming by his coffin, young people took to the streets in cities across the nation. Civil unrest defined the month of April, with the worst riots happening in Washington, D.C., Chicago, and Baltimore. According to Press Secretary George Christian, Johnson was not surprised by the riots that followed. Quote, What did you expect? I don't know why you're so surprised when you put a foot on a man's neck and hold him down for 300 years and then you let him up. What's he going to do? He's going to knock your block off. One of my favorite LBJ quotes. Oh, there's so many. There are. (laughs) There's so many. (laughs) As the nation mourned MLK and questioned its role in the Vietnam War, Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, announced his candidacy for the Democratic Party presidential nomination at the end of April. Humphrey had assumed he would be running for president in 1972 after Johnson's second full term. Johnson's March 31st announcement that he was not running for a second term surprised Humphrey as much as it had the rest of the nation. With little time to build his campaign, Humphrey announced his candidacy on April 27, 1968. Humphrey entered the race too late to compete in any of the major state primaries. Lucky for him, he had the support of much of the Democratic establishment in states that did not conduct primaries, so his path to becoming the Democratic national candidate was good even if he won no state primaries. The California Democratic state primary was held on June 4, 1968. Robert Kennedy won the primary, winning 46.4% to McCarthy's 41.8%. RFK was pulling some of the anti-war Democratic vote away from McCarthy and quickly gaining in popularity. Additionally, the Mexican-American vote in California largely went to Kennedy, spurred by support from labor leader Cesar Chavez, 
California's Mexican-Americans turned out in record numbers for RFK. That night, around midnight, Kennedy gave a victory speech in the embassy ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel. Upon leaving the stage, he and his entourage took a shortcut through the hotel's kitchen on their way to the press area. As Kennedy shook hands with kitchen crew and well-wishers, a crazed man named Siren Siren came out of the crowd and shot RFK three times. One bullet hit Kennedy at close range behind his right ear, one lodged in his neck, and a third entered the back of his shoulder and exited his chest. Five other bystanders were wounded by stray bullets. Kennedy was taken to the hospital and was pronounced dead 26 hours after the initial shooting in the early hours of June 6, 1968. Again, the country mourned not only a Kennedy, whose brother had been brought down by an assassin's bullet only five years earlier, but another civil rights leader. Although RFK's record on civil rights wasn't perfect, he was a staunch champion of the civil rights movement and had done much to further its cause. In two short months, the country had lost two of its most enigmatic leaders to bullets. As America entered the summer months, the country rumbled with protests over the war, coupled with anger, mourning, and violence over the racial reckoning that many were fighting to overcome. The Republican primary was also shaping up to be a crowded contest. New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and Michigan Governor George Romney had thrown their hat in the race. California Governor Ronald Reagan was vying for his party's nomination, too. But it was Richard Nixon who won the Republican Party's nomination for the presidency at the party's August 8th convention. Nixon was no stranger to politics, having been in Republican politics since his 1946 election to the House of Representatives, which he ran against Helen Gahagan Douglas for a Senate seat in California. He used red baiting to defeat her. Gahagan Douglas was a liberal New Deal Democrat, and Nixon claimed she was sympathetic to communism. He called her the pink lady and said she was, quote, pink all the way down to her underwear. Pink, of course, yeah, being his misogynist allusion to communist reds and also directing people to think about his female opponent's undergarments. Yeah. Nixon conducted a dirty campaign that included anti-Semitic attacks. Douglas's husband was Jewish. But red baiting won the day and Nixon defeated Gahagan Douglas while earning himself the nickname Tricky Dick, which he was never able to shake. His tactics became a template for other Republicans to use red baiting as a tactic in further campaigns. One that they have apparently never gotten rid of. Never shook. (laughs) It still works somehow after, what, 50 years? Uh, Well, more than that. In 1950, Nixon was elected to the Senate and in 1952 served as Dwight D. Eisenhower's vice president for eight years. He ran for president in 1960, but was beaten by Democrat John F. Kennedy. In 1968, Nixon again secured the Republican nomination for president, easily winning the nomination on the first ballot. He named Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew as his vice presidential running mate, who would also go on to commit many crimes in office separate from those of the later Watergate crimes, which is just in addition to really remarkable. Yes. 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 On August 10th, just two days after the Republican convention and a few weeks before the Democrats' national convention, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota entered the presidential race. 
Since RFK's assassination, Kennedy's supporters had not moved to support Humphrey or McCarthy in high numbers, leaving McGovern feeling like he had a chance of securing those voters. McGovern's entrance to the race was seen as carrying on RFK's goals in the campaign. However, as the Democrats were gearing up for their national convention, events on the world stage quickly grabbed headlines. On August 20th, Warsaw Pact countries, under direction from the Soviet Union, invaded Czechoslovakia, bringing an end to the so-called Prague Spring. Since January, under the direction of its new leader, Alexander Dubček, the Czechoslovakian government was moving towards decentralizing its economy and granting more rights to Czechoslovakian citizens. Restrictions on media, speech, and travel were loosened, and Dubček split the country into two republics, the Czech Socialist Republic and the Slovak Socialist Republic. In response to these democratization moves by the Dubček government, the Soviets invaded with half a million Warsaw Pact troops and artillery to occupy the country. The Soviets assumed that it would take roughly a week to take control of the country, but citizen resistance held out for eight months. America and its NATO allies, afraid to attempt nuclear war with the Soviets and stretched too thin in Vietnam, made the decision not to aid the Czechs in their bid for democratic freedom. Concurrently, liberal Democrats were working on the party platform for the upcoming national convention. Many in the party believed that a Democrat could not win the national election unless their party moved away from the Johnson administration's policy on the war in Vietnam. However, as acting president and leader of the party, Johnson would not allow the adoption of a party platform that was critical of his Vietnam policy. The Democratic National Convention opened in Chicago on August 26, 1968, with the Johnson administration supporting a decidedly mediocre platform on the war that stated bombing would halt only, quote, when this action would not endanger the lives of our troops in the field. It was hardly the anti-war platform that many liberal Democrats were hoping for. A vote for a peace platform that would state the party agreed to an immediate end to all bombing was debated on Wednesday, August 28th. But the Johnson administration controlled the debate, and ultimately the party voted on the administration-supported plank. Supporters of the peace plank filled the arena with singing, We Shall Overcome, while others chanted, Stop the War. These dramatic events were broadcast on national television and word spread to protesters lining Chicago's streets. News that the peace plank lost to a more moderate majority platform further inflamed tensions both inside the convention and outside on the streets of Chicago. For months, anti-war demonstrators planned and organized a massive rally in Chicago during the national convention. Groups as disparate as the Youth International Party, or Yippies, to the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, known as the MOB, met on the streets of Chicago to protest the war and attempt to sway the convention to support an anti-war and anti-racist platform. However, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley and his city police force had no intention to suffer the protesters. For months, organizers were denied permits for amassing people in public spaces and streets. So when thousands of protesters arrived in the city, there was nowhere for them to legally congregate. Mayor Daley had 6,000 police on the streets of Chicago in preparation for the convention and the expected protesters. 
Another 6,000 National Guard troops were added, along with 1,000 Secret Service men. Fences and barbed wire were added around the convention hall to keep the protesters away from the convention site. Violence began almost as soon as the convention opened. On the night of August 26, police fired tear gas into Lincoln Park on the city's north side in an attempt to clear it for an 11 p.m. curfew. The same occurred the next night on the 27th, but this time the crowds moved to Grant Park and camped there through the night. At Grant Park the next afternoon, police clubbed a protester who appeared to be taking down an American flag from its flagpole. The gathered crowd responded by throwing bricks and debris at the police and shouting, fascist bastards and death to pigs. British journalists describing the chaos that erupted afterwards wrote the police, quote, went quite literally berserk in their retaliation against the protesters. That night around 8 p.m., the largest outbreak of violence took place. Roughly 3,000 demonstrators congregated on South Michigan Avenue. As police attempted to stop the crowd from marching, some police charged into the crowd, beating protesters with their bully sticks. Bystanders and protesters were pushed through the plate glass windows of the nearby Conrad Hilton Hotel. Tear gas permeated the air as national television cameras caught the melee on film and broadcast it for the world to see. The violence outside the convention permeated its way inside the convention. Footage by CBS News, which we will link in the show notes on on the blog, shows that delegates were aware of what was going on outside and were angry at the overzealous actions by the Chicago police. Senator Abraham Ribicoff of Connecticut denounced the, quote, Gestapo tactics on the streets of Chicago from the podium as nearby Mayor Daley shouted an anti-Semitic epithet from his seat on the convention floor. Leadership from the McGovern campaign said one of their volunteers had gone outside to buy something from a street vendor and was clubbed in the face by police without provocation. Dan Rather, of all people, was roughed up and punched in the stomach by security guards while trying to interview a Georgia delegate who was being roughly escorted out of the hall, which prompted Walter Cronkite to call security guards thugs. Chaos. Yeah. Yeah, and we have all of these, all of this film, like, posted on the blog, so definitely check it out. It's wild. Um, However, not all who were watching all of this craziness going on had sympathy for the bloodied protesters. Polls taken after the convention found that a majority of Americans found the fault for the chaos and violence lay with the protesters even though a federal investigating commission concluded that the violence had been the result of a police riot. Despite the violent clashes outside the convention, the party nominated its presidential candidate. Hubert Humphrey won the Democratic nomination with 1,760 votes to McCarthy's 601 and McGovern's 146. Humphrey chose Maine Senator Edmund Muskie, which is like the best name ever, (laughs) uh, to be his running mate. Even though the business of the party went on at the convention, the news footage left many Americans feeling that the Democratic Party was in disarray, and it was. Additionally, the violence of the convention gave both Richard Nixon and George Wallace fodder in their charges that the Democrats were the party of lawlessness. Among the vast majority of Americans who were not keyed in to politics and social justice 24-7, the anti-war movement and the turmoil over race relations in the U.S. were one and the same. 
They saw the Johnson administration as unable or unwilling to address and squash domestic dissent. Additionally, crime rates did increase during the 60s and 70s due to a variety of factors. However, one popular talking point on the right countered that crime was rising because liberal justices were imposing restrictions on police officers. Now, all of you true crime junkies out there are familiar with Miranda rights, or really anybody, not just true crime junkies, but, right, you know, you you have the right to remain silent. (laughs) If you grew up watching a lot of Law Law & Order. Order. Right, 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 right. (laughs) So, So Miranda rights come from the 1966 case, Miranda v. Arizona, in which the Supreme Court ruled that police must inform a person of their rights in a criminal case. Detractors argued that rulings such as Miranda, decided by a quote-unquote liberal Warren court, helped criminals at the expense of law-abiding, and let's not mince words, white citizens. It, it, I My brain was going because I just listened to something um, on NPR not that long ago about something about Republicans and like their their like decades long tactic trying to get conservative judges um, appointed going back to like still being salty basically about the Warren court. And I was like, oh, yeah, what? That just (laughs) kind of blew my mind because I everything I had ever learned about the Warren court was like it was like a, a a shining beacon of justice and, and good things. Right. And I had never thought about the fact that people were like mad about Miranda rights. Yeah. Not, not to yeah. conservatives. I mean, that's like the whole like John right. society. Like that's like kind of what right. fueled yeah. them was, was anti Warren yeah. court. Crazy. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's great. <laughs> After the democratic convention, Humphrey's campaign hobbled along. By mid-September, polls showed Humphrey trailing Nixon by 15 points. In fact, Humphrey's numbers weren't much better than George Wallace's third-party presidential run. Finally, on September 30th, in a speech in Salt Lake City, Humphrey broke with LBJ over policy in Vietnam, promising to stop the bombing in North Vietnam. He immediately saw a bump in the polls, and supporters began showing up with signs that said, If you mean it, we're with you. However, unbeknownst to the Humphrey camp, candidate Nixon was engaging in double dealing in regard to peace talks with Vietnam. On the surface, Nixon campaigned on conservative domestic points such as law and order issues and ending social welfare. He claimed that his support came from the quote-unquote silent majority who didn't subscribe to the counterculture or the pushback against the status quo. When asked about Vietnam, He gave vague answers, promising that he would end the war, but not how he would do it. He relied on giving broad statements about American values, and he maintained he wanted to avoid undermining Johnson's potential peace efforts in Vietnam. This was not the truth. In late October, LBJ was purportedly nearing a peace deal between North and South Vietnam. However, the South Vietnamese surprisingly walked away from these negotiations. This was because Nixon had a backdoor liaison to the South Vietnamese through a woman named Anna Chenault. She told the South Vietnamese to wait and make a peace deal with the Nixon administration instead of making a deal with the lame duck Johnson administration, promising that Nixon would give them better terms. 
On the surface, Nixon professed to support Johnson's efforts, but behind closed doors, he was actively undermining LBJ's prospects of gaining peace, which Nixon feared would help the Humphrey campaign if Johnson succeeded. Tricky dick. Tricky dick. Wind of Nixon's double dealing spread throughout high levels of the administration. LBJ had Chenault surveilled and found out about Nixon's plot, which he equated to treason. But Johnson didn't act on the intelligence because he was afraid that if he exposed Nixon's double dealing, the public would see it as a political move meant to hurt his vice president's rival. Additionally, Johnson didn't have a smoking gun, so to speak, of direct evidence showing Nixon's involvement in the plot. In surveillance, Chenault always referred to the boss and never said her boss was Nixon by name. In 1980, Chenault confessed to her participation in the plot, but Nixon went to his grave professing his innocence. However, in 2017, Nixon's role in the Chenault affair was revealed when biographer John A. Farrell found notes written by Nixon aide and later chief of staff H.R. Halderman stating that Nixon had, in fact, directed an intermediary to persuade the South Vietnamese to not agree to a peace deal until after the election. Isn't that wild? It is. It is. It's wild and also somehow not all that shocking. I mean, I feel like the Nixon presidency is like a weird historian gift that keeps giving because it just never... It, 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 there, never, it never stops... With, like, the the crazy, tr- you know, tricky stuff that they were doing. Or, like, you know, thing, new things come out of the Nixon tapes on, like, a regular basis, it seems like. It's, it's wild. On November 5th, 1968, Americans went to the polls deeply divided over issues of civil rights, social welfare, and the war in Vietnam. It wasn't until the early hours of November 6th that Richard Nixon was declared the winner of the presidential race, winning in one of the narrowest popular vote margins in U.S. presidential election history. He won by just under 500,000 votes, even though his electoral college victory was quite large. American Independent Party candidate George Wallace won 13.5 percent of the popular vote and carried five southern states in the electoral college. That is also wild. That is bonkers. And also gross because George Wallace is gross. (laughs) It's gross. The deflection of aggrieved white Democrats in the North to Nixon and white Southerners to Wallace meant that the Democrats' take of the national vote was 12 million votes less than it had been four years Mm -hmm. earlier when Democrat LBJ beat Republican Barry Goldwater. From Nixon's presidency onward, the GOP positioned itself as supporting civil rights in general while avoiding using federal power to pursue anti-racist ends specifically. Republicans went on to dominate the presidency throughout the 1970s and 80s, save Jimmy Carter's one term. Repercussions of the disastrous Democratic convention spilled over into 1969. Weeks after the late August convention, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley issued a report that blamed the violence on quote-unquote outside agitators who were described as revolutionaries with an avowed purpose of a hostile confrontation with law enforcement. However, the Department of Justice report found no grounds to prosecute demonstrators. 
Additionally, the Johnson administration appointed the National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence to conduct investigations into the violence. The commission released the report on December 1st, 1968, and laid blame for the violence on both police and agitators. The report stated that demonstrators had provoked violence, which led the police to retaliate with violence of their own, resulting in a, quote, police riot. The report recommended prosecution of police who used indiscriminate violence and warned that failure to do so would further deteriorate public confidence in law enforcement. The U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois convened a grand jury to investigate whether the organizers of the demonstrations had violated federal law and whether any police officers had interfered with the civil rights of the protesters. In early 1969, John Mitchell, the new U.S. Attorney General appointed by President Richard Nixon following his inauguration, worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago to strengthen draft indictments against demonstrators. This resulted in the Chicago 8 trial, later known as the Chicago 7 trial, after Black Panther Party leader Bobby Seale was granted a separate trial, but not before he was gagged and chained to his chair for refusing to obey Judge Julius Hoffman's contempt citations. The Chicago 7 trial is known as one of the great court trials in American history, and to many is an example of a political show trial against radical dissenters. The trial deserves its own podcast, and hopefully we can provide that to you in the future. Yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) But today, we'll end with the election of Richard Nixon in 1968 and the traumatic events of such a watershed year. So thanks for listening, and we encourage you to leave a five-star review of our show on your podcast app. Yes, please. It's very helpful to us. You can also support the show, of course, by heading to patreon.com slash digpodcast, where you can financially support the show for as little as $1 a month. And um, make sure that you follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And you can join our Facebook group, um, Dig History Pod Squad, to get lots of memes and other silly content. And I think that's it. Bye. Okay, we'll see you next time. Senator Abraham Ribicoff of... I quit. Good trash. Why can I not speak? 1968 was an extremely... <laughs> Off <to> extremely? <laughs> Alright. One of my favorite LGB. LGB. <laughs> LGB. A vote for a peace platform that would state the... Oh my god. I just never could be sure when I was... Oh my god. You gotta do it with an LBJ I accent. Just... I'd just never be sure when yeah. I was gonna go out. <laughs> With little time to build his campaign, Humphrey and now oh my god. Okay. And never said her boss was Nixon at the time. Oh, fuck. So does that explain a little more? Yes, it does. <laughs> so yeah, editor, cut out all of my nonsense. <laughs> Instead, candidates used dog whistle. Oh, fuck, what is wrong with me? showed a anti-semitic epitaph from his epithet i think you mean epithet right (laughs) you're doing fine you're doing fine (laughs) he's there carving his tombstone on march 31st this move by benny and told them and told them he understood that ang there what was going on inside oh 
were aware. Oh my God. Okay, hold on. Major Daly shouted, Major. Oh my fucking <laughs> Lord. Done. Send it. I think there's a word missing there. I think that it warned, maybe, that the report recommended. Okay. Oh, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, put that in. Do you want to read it again? No, we'll leave it okay. there. The U.S. District. No, no, no. I was, I was kidding. Oh, I will. I will. 